it's almost like our personalities are our defects that actually create the idiosyncrasies that make us uh, unique, but also, frankly, painfully problematic. And it's when you move beyond that personality, you're actually moving to that place where there's a bit of, you know, there's less of a duality in life where you're more at one with people. I, I'm a big believer in two ways of being in life. There's a tane and the, there's a tune. And there's times when in life when it's better to be one versus the other. But frankly, when you're in the attain mode, you often have to atone afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're in the attune mode, you're at one. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is Chip Conley, an expert where psychology meets business. Chip is a New York Times bestselling author, and his latest book is Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Chip is founder of the Modern Elder Academy, the world's first midlife wisdom school, which you can learn about by visiting modernelderacademy.com. Chip founded Joie de Vivre, which grew to become the world's second largest boutique hotel chain, which he ran for 24 years, grew to 3,500 employees before he sold it in pursuit of freedom and creativity. He has served as strategic advisor to the founders of Airbnb. Chip has served on the boards of the Esalen Academy and Burning Man. He is a festival lover at heart. He has broad experience and incredible wisdom. I was interested to talk to Chip because his latest book really recognizes that we're living longer and looking for meaning in ways that we never have before. Chip makes the point that everyone gets older, but not everyone gets elder. The first just happens if you're lucky and healthy. The other you have to earn. In this conversation, I explore with Chip the rationale behind his thinking, what it means to have a midlife crisis or a midlife awakening. In some ways, it's a choice. Chip shares many useful and interesting insights in this interview, including this. The more digital we get, the more ritual we need. In this conversation, Chip and I explore the topic of retirement. We talk about the three things that happen for many people in retirement that actually cause a decline in the quality of their life and what we can do to avoid those. Chip talks about something called the U-curve of happiness, pointing out how life satisfaction declines as we approach mid-age, but then it goes back up again. And that is only one of many things that Chip has brought to my attention that I'm really excited about. I am looking forward to getting older and I'm grateful to next level thinkers like Chip who are helping us to not only live longer, but to live better. I think you'll hear many things in this interview that will help you make the rest of your life the best of your life. So thanks for listening. Please enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Chip Conley. Chip, welcome to the School for Good Living. Great to be with you. I'm honored to join you. Yes, I'm so glad you have. Chip, will you tell me, please, what's life about? 
<laughs> well, I guess I would say that the, uh, I'd quote someone else who once said, the, the meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of life is to give it away. So I think it's really that, those, that sequence, the idea of, in many ways, it's the first half of your life, which is the, the period of time where you really tap into your talents, your wisdom, maybe the gifts that you've been given. And then the second half of your life is, is to actually explore how you give those away and maybe create a legacy by doing so. So I would say that is what life is all about. Oh, beautiful. I love that idea. And for me, as I hear you share it now, it brings to mind something I've also heard you say, which is about, for many of us, maybe all of us, the first half of life is about accumulating and the last half is about editing. Will you talk about that? Yeah, I think that it's been, it's been interesting. I, you know, I, I've studied a lot of thinkers, psychologists, philosophers around, you know, what happens in midlife and what's the first half versus the second half versus the second half. And that, my idea that it's about accumulation and then it's editing is, is sort of my own idea around that. But it's, it really comes from the idea that in the first half of life we're in the exploration mode, and in fact, in, often we're living someone else's life. It's based upon standards and ways of being that often are defined by our family or our social milieu, whoever we've been surrounded by. And there's a point at which we start to feel the weight of all the baggage of the responsibilities, the mindset, the identities, the people in our life, the children, the, you know, whatever, all of that stuff, the stuff, just even the stuff, the physical material stuff. And at that point, we feel almost this sense of being suffocating by it, all of that. And it's at that point, frankly, around midlife, when people often have what's called a midlife crisis. I, I like to call it a midlife awakening. It is at that point where they start to realize that much of this stuff, much of this is baggage. And if you're going to live, if you're going to run the midlife marathon, which I think is now last 40 years <laughs> from 35 to 75, you better get rid of some of the baggage because it's no fun to run, run a marathon with baggage. And so that's when you start to edit. And, and the editing process of your life is, is when you start to determine what's truly important to you. And that's really when wisdom starts to kick in. Wisdom is all about helping you understand what's essential and important in life. Yeah. I know this is something you've devoted your life to, and I love that your writing and your speaking is really at the intersection of business and psychology, what it means to live well. I love that you take a big picture, long-term view of things. And of course, this includes death. And I know you've had your own flatline experience. And I know in your book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, you share that in a period of about five years, you, you lost four friends to suicide. So mm. clearly death is a part of life, but this has reached perhaps an epidemic proportion. But I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about your own experience with death. Sure. You know, it, uh, it snuck up on me. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a hotelier and I had a hotel, a hotelier wake-up call. <laughs> sort of a funny irony. I was 47 years old. This was uh, 12 years ago. And it was at the start of the Great Recession. I was going through a really rough time on many levels. Every part of my life was sort of falling apart. And one of my closest friends named Chip, strangely, has the same name as me, uh, who is my insurance broker, but he's also sort of my spiritual guide. He committed suicide. He was the first of the four friends that committed suicide uh, during the Great Recession. And it was a strange time because it was at a time where I was having dreams and nightmares of 
you know, death, usually cancer and car crashes. And so I was telling him and others about it, and then he 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 commit suicide. And so that next, that was late, that was basically April 30th, 2008. And over the next two to three months, my life fell apart even worse. And then I had, I broke my ankle playing baseball, got a bacterial infection in my leg from the injury and ended up on a very strong antibiotic. And I should have actually just stayed at home. I mean, at that point it was like, okay, Maybe at home with the, the, the covers over my head. Yeah. Well, um, hindsight just, is always perfect, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. And I was just sort of trying, I felt like, okay, I don't want this depression that I felt was coming upon me to take over me. And I felt, you know, my natural tendency in life has been to been an, be an attainer and be in action. And if I run fast enough, I will run, outrun my emotions. And in this case, it was almost if I run fast enough, I will outrun my my death because what ended up happening it was on, I was on stage in St. Louis giving a speech. I was then on, still on stage signing books and fortunately sitting down. And I went unconscious in my chair when I was signing someone's book. And um, I got up like three to five minutes later. Not didn't get up. I was still. I just became conscious. And then the paramedics showed up soon after that. Once they put me on the gurney, they actually uh, put heart monitors on me. And that's actually when I when I went flatline. And it was the first of a few times. And um, it was primarily a, a very strong reaction, allergic reaction to an antibiotic I was on for my septic leg. And so what that did, though, is it really, really acquainted me with this idea of like, wow, life is precious every day. You never know if it's going to be a last. And it led me over the next two years, a very difficult two years of the Great Recession, to sell my company that I thought I would run until I was 75 years old, but I sold it at age 49 and was just ready to move on. And it was um, it was hard because it, it, re- it represented my identity in so many ways. I'd, I started the company when I was 26, so I ran it for almost 24 years. But it was it really woke me up to you know what what am I looking for in my life now and. What's what I, the reason I started the company at age 26, it was a boutique hotel company called Joie de Vivre. Ironically, I wasn't feeling a lot of Joie de Vivre, which, which means joy of life in French. I realized that I started the company for creativity and freedom. And by the time I had my flatline experience, I had 3,500 employees and a, just an enormous payroll going into a downturn where we were going to lose a lot of money. And I didn't, just didn't have the money in the bank. I sold at the, the exact wrong time to sell from a financial perspective, uh-huh. but I sold it exactly the right time to sell from a, a good life perspective. Wow. Yeah. You know, the things, there's so much about that that touches me. One of them is the generosity of your heart to wait until the EMTs, the paramedics were there. <laughs> that, that was <laughs> yeah. pretty nice. And, yeah. and then also facing death, it sounds like not just physically, but financially, you know, right oh, there too. Yeah. That's that's pretty incredible the parallels of that and I'm sure they impacted you know one played had an effect on one another but yeah. man that's yeah. that's incredible and you know now with what you're doing and I'm really encouraged and inspired by the work you're doing by the way because I recently turned 40 I'm 42 mm-hmm. and to be honest I didn't think I would ever make it to 40 the way mm-hmm. I had a pretty grim outlook on life when I was young I felt you know, I had a real nihilistic worldview. I didn't think there was such thing as meaning and not in an empowering way, not like, oh, it's just up to me to bring meaning to life, you know? Right. And, and so I didn't expect to be here, but the, my 40th birthday was one of the best days of my life. And I'm further encouraged by the fact that I've read you say that your 50s have been your favorite decade so far. 
Oh, by far. Yeah. And, and it's not like I've had a terrible life, but what's, there's a lot of social science that actually backs this up. Um, let me talk about the U-curve of happiness. So the U-curve of happiness has been studied across virtually all cultures and countries around the world. And what it's shown is similar to what we were talking about earlier. When people hit 45 to 50, I'm sorry to say that, Brian, <laughs> although I think you've, I think because you're evolved and accelerated in your life, you know, you, you may have already gone through it. But generally speaking, there's a point in people's lives where there's a, a long, slow reduction in life satisfaction or happiness. Starts, frankly, in people's you know, early to mid-20s, and uh, it, it tends to actually bottom out around 45 to 50. And then you basically, there's, a, there's an equation. I wrote a book called Emotional Equations a few years ago, and there's an equation that defines it which is uh, disappointment equals expectations minus reality. And it's at that point around 45 to 50 that a lot of people actually shift their expectations. And Brene Brown calls it the midlife unraveling. And what she's talking about there is the idea that you unravel all of the expectations that you've had on yourself and others have had on you. And, and you actually, for that sake of that equation, disappointment equals expectations minus reality, you actually take down the expectations some. And in many ways, you actually jettison what isn't serving you anymore. So I, I think that for me, that is exactly what happened. I went into my 50s feeling quite a bit of creativity and freedom, which was the thing I really was missing. Uh, but it ironically, it was the thing that led me to starting my company. And then my 50s have been a, a fascinating sojourn on many levels at a time where, generally speaking, society seems to suggest that you are being put out to pasture and your best days are behind you, uh, there's no doubt my 50s have been my best days on many levels and certainly from a life contentment perspective. That, that is so great. And what I love in hearing what you're sharing now is really your, what, what I see is a strong sense of internal congruence, of integrity, where you were willing to look at your life honestly, first of all, which I know not all of us are. Um, in fact, it reminds me of Jung's statement about, maybe misquote this, but about we will do anything no matter how absurd to avoid looking at our own soul. You know, but you were willing to do that and to see that why you started the company was this, this desire to experience freedom and creativity and that to allow that to continue to guide you into the, you know, the future, even when it was unknown. Absolutely. Jung was, Jung was actually a bit of a guide for me during this time because you know, one of the other things he said, again, paraphrasing, was you can't live the afternoon of your life based upon the rules of the morning because by the time you get to the afternoon, um, what used to be truth has become a lie. And he, what he was really speaking to was the idea that, in my opinion, that the first half of your life is from adolescence to what we call now middle-essence, which is the emotional and hormonal changes that go on in midlife, which are most fam famously known for, you know, with me menopause for women, but it's also something called andropause for men, is that, that that era from adolescence to adolescence are almost like those are the bookends of ego. Mm. And, and ego can be a very positive thing in someone's life in the sense that it helps you to individuate. It helps to be a motivator in life. It helps you to feel the sense of who you are potentially. But ego taken to the extreme or ego lived later in life uh, can often look sort of sad and, and uh, ridiculous. And so what happens is 
what Jung was talking about in terms of the rules of the morning were very ego-driven rules. The rules of the afternoon are very soul-driven rules. And so the primary operating system that defines the first half of your life is, is your ego. But then there's a shift, and, and, and often it, the shift happens without any language or any roadmap that tells you you're about to have a hair turn, a, a hair, what do you call it? A hairpin hair, turn. Hairpin, hair, hair yeah. Yeah, you're going to have a hairpin turn here, but nobody tells you. And in that hairpin turn is when you come face to face with your soul and you have the opportunity to realize that your soul can become your primary operating system. And if you appropriately and successfully make that transition in midlife, life gets so much better because some of the, the way you see your life and the way you see yourself, you look at yourself and you say, yeah, those are the rules of the morning. Those are not the rules of the afternoon or the early evening, or as I like to call it, my Indian summer. Um, which is which is sort of the era I'm in right now, which is sort of late summer, <clears throat> which is sort of you know late fifties is an, you know early early sixties is sort of a late summer part of life, not quite into the full autumn season, which might be you know your mid sixties to your mid seventies, you know, and then you, you go into winter, you know, maybe in your eighties or you know if you're lucky enough, maybe your nineties. So I think that recognizing that it's not you know sometimes people say well you know the character of a person doesn't change. Yeah, the character may not, the priorities may, the personality may, um, but there's, you know, I think these are different, these are different qualities of a human being. Yeah. Certainly the values may. I, yeah. You know, I think character may not change a lot. Values could change, can change dramatically. I think personality can change moderately as well. So. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I've seen that already in, in my own life. And, uh, you know, now in the coaching work I do and, and, uh, in some of the teachers that I've had the privilege to study with, um, in fact, you know, I think about something I heard Sadhguru say that I thought was really amazing when he said, personality is a psychological malady. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, wow. you know, and then talking about how in the same way we have a physical body, we have this mental body that's an accumulation of things, but it's not who we are. So, you know, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I definitely, like you're saying, believe we can change our personality. It's it's interesting. I mean, I think it's like so many things. My habits are not me. My personality is not me. And I think as you get later in life, it's not that you don't have traits and and ways of being that that define you. They're different. I'm a huge fan of the the Enneagram, um, which is a you know ancient personality typing tool. And um, I do believe that there's a lot of value in it. But I actually think when you get from the unhealthy side of each of the nine types of, of the Enneagram to the healthier type, you start to actually move in a, a direction where all of them start to merge a little bit. And mm. the, the most high-functioning people in life are people who actually look pretty similar to each other. It's almost like our personalities are our are defects that actually create the idiosyncrasies that make us... Uh, unique, but also, frankly, painfully problematic. And it's when you move beyond that personality, you're actually moving to that place where there's a bit of, you know, there's less of a duality in life where you're more at one with people. I, I'm a big believer in, uh, this is my own philosophy on this one, is that I, I think you can have two ways of being in life. There's attain and there's a tune. And there's times when in life when it's better to be one versus the other, depending you know, if you're, if you're surfing or yo doing yoga, you probably should attune. If you're running a hundred yard dash, you probably should attain. And 
So attain and attune, but frankly, when you're in the attain mode, you often have to atone afterwards. <laughs> and when you're in the attune mode, you're at one. And I think if striving in life, or striving is the wrong word, but living a life and a good life in such a way that you are trying to spend more of your life in the attunement mode yeah. as opposed to the attainment mode. The attainment mode is your first half of your life. The attunement mode is the second half of your life. When you're in the attunement mode, you're in the at one place. And when you're in an at one place, you are moving out of your personality and you are part of something that's more collective. And um, I don't know, that's, that's getting pretty, pretty heady. Um, <laughs> I hope you don't mind. No, I, I love it. And I think the people who listen to me, this is, you know, this is their jam. So uh, no, I, th I think it's great. And the Enneagram is one of those things that I've, you know, done a little bit of work about, identified my type. I've had the intention to study it more. I figure at some point it's going to be perfect. Is it something, so let me, maybe this is a segue to, I want to ask about the Modern Elder Academy because I know that's a huge part of what you're up to now. And, and the connection there maybe is, is the Enneagram part of your curriculum there? But before we go to that, I, I do want to be sure to ask you about this because I know it's something you're passionate about. I figure it must inform what you're doing these days. And but you can tell me is your love of festivals. Mm. Will you talk about that? And, and I know you, <laughs> you've, this has been something near and dear to you for a long time. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, well, let's go back to my, bi my biography a little bit. So okay. um, I uh, sold my company um, uh, in 2010, Joie de Vivre Hospitality, which, which at that point was the second largest boutique hotelier in the US. And, and, and again, and, Chip, you, you, you'd run it for 24 years? 24 years. 24 yeah, years, yeah. 3,500 employees. 3,500 employees. We had created 52 boutique hotels, all of them at that time in California. Amazing. And so I thought about what was next for me. And the thing that actually was screaming at me, and it was a weird thing, was festivals. I'd spent a lot of my life going to festivals, although I can't say I was a festival junkie at that point. Um, that was soon to come. But I had been, I was on the, the board of Burning Man, the, you know, the, the festival in the desert in Nevada. And I had been going to Burning Man for 20 years and, and, and was a really early early adopter to that festival and, and really loved what it represented, loved the 10 principles, et cetera. So I was interested in that. What was intriguing to me after I sold my company was this element of the more digital we get, the more ritual we need. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the IRL experiences in real life and the URL experiences, of course, on the web. And the history of mankind, humankind, has been IRL. You know, we go in festival, we do festivals. And what was interesting is in the, the first 10 years of this millennia, the, so from 2000 to 2010, there was this enormous growth in the digital world. And yet there was this enormous growth in, in festival culture of all kinds, not just music festivals or transformational festivals, but you know religious pilgrimages, film festivals, food festivals, art and cultural festivals. They're all showing double-digit growth. So what was going on in my head is, how do you find the world's best festivals? How do you find a fest festivals that are actually made for you? Are, is there a matchmaker for you to find the perfect festivals for you? And so that's what I went out to do and, and created a website called Fest 300 while, uh, soon after I uh, sold my company. And it was a, a, a focus on the 300 best festivals in the world, which that company ultimately merged with a company called Everfest. And for uh, you know a couple of years, um, I was going around the world to all the world's best festivals. One in, one year in particular, I went to thirty six festivals in twenty countries. Wow! 
it was amazing. And what I learned from that, and this is right before I, I joined uh, the three founders of Airbnb, but what I actually learned from that was this element of collective effervescence. Hmm. So Emil Durkheim is a, uh, first of all, let's go, a lot of interesting work on collective psychology and sociology was done in the early part of the 20th century. Um, so rites of passage, the whole premise of rites of passage and initiations was studied by a guy named Arnold Van Genep in the early 20th century. Uh, Emile Durkheim studied something called collective effervescence. He was a French sociologist who studied religious pilgrimages. And what he saw was that when a group comes together and has a common purpose, what seems to happen is the egos of everybody who's there evaporates and what comes in its place is communal joy. And so this, and he called that collective effervescence. So what I started to be intrigued by was how can we create a world that has more collective effervescence? And right, right around that time I was uh, approached by the three founders of Airbnb who wanted me to, to join them to help take their little tech startup, which this was seven more than seven years ago, uh, take their little tech startup and turn it into a global hospitality brand. And like, I didn't have a clue what they were doing. I, I, I was a hospitality person who was sort of like completely out of it about this, this home sharing trend that was, you know, on the horizon. And long story short is I spent four years full time with them, pretty much helping them steer the, the rocket ship. And then the last three years, more than three years, as a strategic advisor. And for over seven years now, I've been the in-house mentor to Brian Chesky, the CEO. That experience, and this brings me to Modern Elder Academy, that experience led me to realize something pretty quickly, which was I was 52 at the time I joined. The average age in the company was 26. Within three months after I was there, someone started calling me the modern elder in the company, which I initially hated because I thought, was, I thought they were calling me modern elderly. But there's a big difference between an elder and elderly. Elderly is the last five or 10 years of your life. And an elder is just a relative term. Yeah. If you're, if you're a 52-year-old surrounded by 26-year-olds, you are the elder. And then right around that same time, Brian said to me, Chip, we brought you in for your knowledge, but what we've really gotten from you is your wisdom. And I had never in my life thought about what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And so long story short is ultimately during my four years of 70 hours a week with them, I started percolating a book in me, which was you know, wisdom at work, the making of a modern elder. So I used the term that they used to describe me to describe a period of people's lives that I think is you know, a more and more important part of our society because if we're living longer and power is moving younger, which I think there's a lot of evidence of that in the digital world, yeah, and the world is changing faster, those three variables have left a lot of people in midlife confused. The suicide rate for midlifers is 50% higher today than it was 20 years ago, Amazing. et cetera. And that's ultimately what led me to creating the world's first midlife wisdom school called the Modern Elder Academy, which I can talk more about, but I just want to shut up so you can no. <laughs> so you can ask a question. Yeah, well, thank you for thank you for sharing that. It's it's an incredible journey. And I love that you followed, I don't know that you would phrase it this way, but to me, the outside observer, it certainly appears you've taken Campbell's advice to follow your bliss. Mm. And and found ways to share that with others that's also made a difference for them, including me. I really enjoyed this Wisdom at Work book and, and watching your TED Talks, although we haven't met in person yet. And one of the, I mean, I've learned so much about just how our society has changed. I mean, things that when I look at it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's happened. You know, things like 
where you point out that this is the first time in recorded history that we have five generations working side by side. Right. You know, and I was like, that is incredible. Or the fact that these are conventions we've created like adolescence and retirement in, yeah. in the 20th century. And, and what you point out too, I love Barbara Waxman's term that you introduced me to of middle essence yeah. and how we look forward to adulthood as kids with excitement, but we don't seem to have that same kind of enthusiasm for elderhood, but we could, right? And you're helping us to even be aware of the possibility and, and to experience it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if it, we're talking about a long-term phenomenon here is uh, the fact that there are a lot of people who are what might be called the young old uh, at 59 as someone who still surfs uh, or uh, still surfs is learning to surf. Let's be more clear about that is still trying to surf uh, <laughs> and learning Spanish. You know, I'm, I don't believe that our lives get smaller as we get young, as we get older. I actually think not necessarily sure they get larger. They do get larger in the sense of, larger perspective yeah. um, because it's very clear that I think we can have a bigger, more holistic perspective. One of the things that's very true from brains research is that when you're younger, you're exceptionally good at remembering things quickly and you have quick recall. You also have a very focused brain. As you get older, we all, we all know about the fact that we aren't as good with memory and maybe not as quick. But the thing that a lot of people don't know that's pretty much now uh, well-known in the brain science field is that our brain gets better at holistic thinking mm. and connecting the dots. We can think and see more broadly and in a, in a larger context. And I think that what that really helps us to do is to sort of see that in your 50s, let's say, or even in your early 60s to mid-60s, you may be in a place where you have a role in a company that is evolving with time. And then as you're, and beyond that, I think the idea that there are certain professions that are absolutely well-suited for someone who's older, you know, a coach, uh, a teacher, a professor, a writer, a poet, a, a social activist. Yeah. I actually think these are all qualities, uh, you know, maybe even certain kinds of legal professions, uh, certainly philosophers. I mean, there's, a, there's an element that being able to synthesize things is, is very valuable. Now, a software engineer less so. You know, there's no doubt that, it, and it's not just because, you know, there's so many software languages that have been learned since the time you learned your computer engineering, you know, 30 years ago, but it's also because the brain of a software engineer is better suited for what a software engineer needs, which is focus. So I think trying to understand how do we do something you know, that's been proven, which is how do we create environmental mastery in our lives? So environmental mastery, when I'm talking about that, I'm not talking about eco ecology or the environment. I'm actually talking about the evidence that shows that as we get older, we get better at understanding where to repot ourselves, both in the career space, but also in terms of where we live and who we live with, et cetera. We have a better sense of what's the perfect habitat for us to flourish. That is a quality you get better at with time. And so with that, it allows you to understand where and when is the right place to be putting yourself in the right habitat that's, that's just right for you at this particular moment in your life. It's such a great question. And, you know, I love a phrase you use in this book about same seeds, different soil mm, and, yes. and having that ability to understand. And, and, and I also really appreciate what you're saying about the differences in the way our minds seem to work when we're young and when we're maybe a little older. And to me, that seems like a really elegant 
feature, a design feature in the universe, just maybe in the same way that a tree has different parts. You know, the roots perform a very different function from the leaves, but they all function in harmony and benefit from one another. And the same where there's this, I don't know that it's truly symbiotic, but a beneficial relationship between, you know, these who have this life experience in this age and the younger and to really celebrate and appreciate those differences and not use them as reasons to divide ourselves in any way. I, I think that's great. Well, I think what's interesting is when it comes to the intergenerational side of this, there's so much evidence that an intergenerational potluck is the way we solve big problems in the world because each of us, each generation can bring something else to the table that you know maybe another generation can't. And again, these are crass generalizations yeah. as if everybody in a generation has the same qualities. That's not true. They don't. We don't. But we just certainly have different life views and different perspectives. And some of them are not generational. They're actually stage of life. So you know, when some people say, oh, baby boomers say, oh, those millennials, they're just so narcissistic. And I was like, you know, yeah, you were too in your 20s. Yeah. Um, so, so I think some of these things are like stage of life, life issues. Some of them are generational issues. But I, the, the thing that's particularly interesting to me is that there's some recent evidence out of Europe that of all of the kinds of diversity and inclusion groups you can have in terms of a team, uh-huh. whether it's gender, race, sexual orientation, or age, the one that shows the greatest positive effect, and they all show a positive effect. Let's start with that. Diversity does matter and actually shows um, when it's well executed on a team that actually it makes for a better team. But the one that's actually the most effective is age diversity. And why is that? It's because it actually lends itself to more cognitive diversity because there's more diversity in a group when it's different aged brains than when it's different brains from and social backgrounds from people who are different race, gender, or sexual orientation. So it's an interesting thing, problem from a problem-solving perspective. From a social perspective, it might be a different perspective. Who knows? But actually what the evidence is, and it's out of Germany, is that from a problem-solving perspective, age-diverse teams have the most profound effect on effectiveness. I love, I love that. And uh, I might be dating myself here for some of the younger listeners, but I'll buy that and I'll use as a basis of my reasoning, Gilligan's Island. <laughs> I don't know if they would have all got off the island if they'd all been homogenous. That's a very interesting yeah. thought. I like yeah. that. <laughs> um, okay. So let me shift our conversation a bit to, I want to ask you about elderhood, about what it means to you and Let's start there. What will you talk a little bit about this term that maybe some people would experience, like maybe you did, equating yep. elder with elderly to how is this actually an empowering and potentially exciting concept? Well, let's start with just the idea that um, words matter, and um, there have been words in the past that have been reclaimed by those that actually owned the word and it had been used as a derogatory word previously. Black was a derogatory uh, word from white racists in the South uh, towards people of color or what, what at that time were colored people. And then Malcolm X and others, you know, said black is beautiful in, in the sixties and redneck, frankly, was a, was a, was a bad term as was Yankee. Yankee was a term that the, the Brits called the colonists and it was oh, yeah. a derogatory term. I forgot so long, that and, one. And more recently, queer. Queer is one yes. that's been reclaimed by the LGBTQ community. And so the idea of reclaiming elder is not unheard of. 
what's the idea I have on this? Well, it's not just elder because let's also know the elder of the past had a, has some baggage attached to it. It was usually male patriarchy where all the power rested with the elders who frankly weren't all that open to change. And frankly, at that time we lived in an, in a society where change didn't happen very often. So if you were an elder farmer, you're like the, you know, the, the farmer's almanac, you knew seeds, you knew light, you knew seasons. You're, you were someone who could, you, you had the wisdom, the land wisdom that you could pass on to younger generations. Well today, you know, some of that wisdom of the past is, is really more knowledge than it is wisdom. And it's knowledge that actually is somewhat obsolescent. So the elder of the past was regarded with reverence. But the elder of the modern era, the modern elder, is, is appreciated for not their reverence, but their relevance. Mm. And in order to be relevant, you better be as curious as you are wise. And what does that mean? It means that you better be open to evolving and editing what you know and your mindsets and everything else around the idea of being a, a just a beginner's mind in that curiosity state. I had to do that at Airbnb. I was at age 52 joining a tech company for the first time. And true, true story, I joined that company not even thinking I was joining a tech company. I just hadn't even thought like, wow, this is going to be a very strange habitat. I don't understand the lingo at all. I don't even understand how, what's the strategy for a tech company. I understood a lot of things. I'm not dumb. But I just didn't understand a lot of things as well. I'll bet that so was really humbling. Oh, I had to like, I had to actually be comfortable being the dumbest person in the room a lot. And yet I was supposed to be the one who they brought in to like be like help them as the knowledgeable person. So I realized that, you know, I had to be curious and wise at the same time. And so this idea that I was relevant allowed me to sort of say, I'm going to be a fast learner on the things I don't know. And then when I see things where I see like, wow, they have a blind spot on something that it had not, sometimes it had something to do with the industry or my knowledge around leadership or hospitality, but often it had to do with wisdom around humans. You know, we, we, you know, the world is full of B2B companies and B2C companies and C2C company. I don't know. There's all A to Z companies, but really it's all H to H and H to H basically means human to human. And wisdom often is about pattern recognition of understanding yourself and others. Mm -hmm. And so it's about understanding humans. And so even in a tech company, that human to human interaction is essential and pretty important. And in fact, Google studied all of their global teams. They created something called Project Aristotle because they, what they wanted to do is to understand what's the, the number one, or actually what it turned out to be, the, number, the top five variables that make for an effective team. And I won't go over numbers two through five, but far and away, number one was psychological safety. So psychological safety came absolutely down to understanding the team and how do you create an environment where people feel like they can build trust, where people are of varying demographic types that don't fit the dominant in the group. They feel like they have a voice where people feel like they can have a different opinion and voice it and have a conversation about it and then align around it. All of that made for the most effective teams. And what it was also found was that, um, generally speaking, if you have an age-diverse team, and especially if you have some emotionally moderate older people on the team, because generally speaking, EQ grows with age, it actually makes for a more effective team and more psychological safety. Uh, and, and I found at Airbnb, what that meant for me often was like no one thought of me as competition. The person across the table who was their same age and they're vying for the same career path 
that was competition. Yeah. <laughs> and in that, in that case, it was, you know, everybody was trying to be the smartest person in the room to out-compete out each other. But when it came to chip, it was not like, no one was like, no, I wasn't competing with anybody. And so what that meant, and I, was, and I was also a little bit more emotionally moderate. So when things would get hairy in a meeting, I was sometimes the one who helped bring it back to a place of being on even keeled. Yeah, that's so valuable. I remember reading that study um, that Google uh, created. And I think part of what's so valuable about it is that this isn't just some blogger's opinion, right? I mean, this is Google is a very analytical company, obviously, and they, they did a broad study. And I know this is something that I love you have this, what I would call affectionately a bit of a nerd for papers, scientific <laughs> you know, papers and stuff like that. And yes, part of that I is, I think, reflected in the role, one of the, the roles you also took about being a librarian. Will you talk about yeah. that and how this relates? Yeah. You know, I, I, I had two roles that I, li I like to talk about. I've mean, I had many roles. I, I Ultimately, if weirdly, about two months into the job, Brian said to me, you're now in charge of strategy for the company. You're the head of global hospitality and strategy. And it's funny, like, Brian, I've never actually been in a tech company. You want me to be the head of strategy <laughs> for a tech company? That's funny. But one of the things that was interesting uh, that was at times my role, especially when people would say, I want you to be my mentor. What, what a person, in some cases, what they're asking was, I want you to actually be my advisor. Mm. I want you to be my librarian. And what they really meant was, I want you to show me the know-who or give me the know-who and know-how of something that you have some knowledge on. So knowledge speaks. And so I was, they would ask me questions. My job was to sort of like help answer the questions and help them understand that particular thing. And it usually was a very finite relationship. On the other hand, sometimes people would ask me to be a mentor and they, didn't, they weren't really looking for something finite and specific like knowledge. They were really looking for, like, how, how can I be a better leader? Or what's the right career path? Or how can I be more emotionally intelligent? Generally speaking, these are questions that require not just a little bit of advice, but it's an ongoing mentor role or what I called the confidant role. And actually, I called it the confidant role because one of my direct reports said to me, she was French, and she said, Chip, you know, you're my confidant. And this was about two months into me leading her, managing her. And I looked at her and I said, you haven't told me anything juicy yet. <laughs> how, how am I, how am I your, your confidant? And she said, no, I, in, in my part of France, when someone calls you a confidant, they're not saying, you know, you're the person who you give all the secrets to. You're actually saying you're the one who gives me confidence. You're the one who actually makes me feel confident and, and makes good choices wow. and helps me to see what are the things I need to know in order to make the right choices. You're my permissionary. You give me the permission, but you also give me the tools of how to get it right. What a to compliment. And so, yes. So when someone asked, told me I was a confidant, it really meant I want to have an ongoing relationship with you where you're, it's, you know, wisdom listens. So it's, it's interesting. Jimi Hendrix long ago said, knowledge speaks and wisdom listens. The first relationship being the librarian, knowledge speaks. They ask me questions, I answer them. I'm speaking. The second kind of relationship where they really wanted almost personal development, my relationship was not to speak knowledge. My relationship was to listen uh, mm -hmm. with wisdom. And wisdom listens basically in that case meant often what I would do is I was the one asking them questions. Mm -hmm. and, and using something called appreciative inquiry, which is a form, uh, a really interesting form of how to be more curious and catalytic with your questions um, that open up, opens up possibilities. And so what I often do would do would help people find the right answer. 
and by the fact that we found it together or they found it by themselves, but I helped lead them there meant that they were more committed to it. And they were able to see the logic of how they got there as opposed to just chip went and just gave them the answer. Yeah. And so that was a fascinating journey to, to learn all of that and to sort of do be my own teacher. But what was so interesting about this, Brian was like, I, I, I didn't really have any guidance on this, this stuff. I mean, it's kind I was, of ironic that here you are yeah. providing wisdom and guidance <laughs> without. I was it looking yourself. for it, and there's this guy Bill Campbell who's who's passed away, but he was like quite famous in Silicon Valley as they called him the coach, and and he was somebody who get, who gave lots and lots of um, wisdom and advice to Steve Jobs and the founders of Google and a lot of people. So I started reading up on him a little bit, and I actually tried to reach out to him just before he died, and and unfortunately we never connected. But I almost was channeling Bill Campbell and. What that led me to is this idea, okay, I got to write a book about this. And so I came down here to Baja, um, which is where I had just bought a home and renovated it. And, and so I'm one, one hour north of uh, Cabo San Lucas on the Pacific Ocean side in an area called Todos Santos and our little village, fishing village, fishing and farming village is called El Pescadero. And so I started writing this book. And when I was writing the book, what happened was I this light bulb you know, I, I got I got kissed by Epiphany as if she was some angel, you know, when I was going for a run on the beach. I came back from a beach run and I just said, wow, I have been a hospitality leader for my virtually my whole career. I have been on the board of the Esalen Institute for almost 10 years and I've been a teacher there for many years, which is, you know, the first personal growth retreat center. So I understand that world. And then I've spent the last few years at Airbnb and I have a new point of view on, my, on how to create a new mindset on aging and, and how to become a modern elder. What if we created the world's first midlife wisdom school? Because, you know, back to some of the things we talked about earlier, adolescence as a life stage it has only a 116-year uh, career. It was created in 1904. The word was coined and the concept was created. And prior to that point, very, very few people in the United States went to junior a public junior or a senior high school. And then adolescence came along and said, well, adolescence is a life stage. It's, not, it's sort of a, an interstitial liminal stage, a transitional stage between childhood and adulthood. We need to help give people schools and tools to help them with that period of time to prepare them for this next stage of life called adulthood. And guess what? Adolescence, the founding of adolescence led to that. Well, the founding of middolescence is relatively new. And I actually think middle essence is what prepares you for elderhood. And again, not elderly, but elderhood. And so we need schools and tools to help people with this era, especially at a time where, frankly, power is moving younger and more and more people are feeling irrelevant and lost and sometimes, you know, moving to suicide. And that's what, that's the origin story for why, you know, almost three years ago, I first had the concept and then January of 2018, we opened with um, a half year of beta groups, trying it out, 13 different cohorts. And then we opened to the public in November, 2018. Wow. And have now had 800 people from 24 countries go through the either one week or two week programs that we offer. That That is so fantastic. And your story of going down there, buying the home, renovating, you know, having the epiphany with the run on the beach, it, it just sounds so magical or divinely inspired. Hey, thanks so much for listening to part one of my interview with Chip Conley. Please tune in to part two as we continue our conversation. 
Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.